Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Ronit Malka, and today we'll be discussing orbital and nasal ethmoid fractures with oculoplastic surgeon Dr. Brett Davies and facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon Dr. Mark Homan. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. And Dr. Homan, thanks also for joining us from deployment. We know it's not an easy task for you. Yeah, no worries. Appreciate it. I'll start with Dr. Homan first. Do you mind walking us through how a patient with an orbital fracture or an NOE presents? Yeah. So, um, you know, when you're seeing these folks, uh, whether it's in your clinic or in the emergency room or, or whatever, um, you know, you can usually kind of walk into the room and, and see what's going on. There's usually some uh, periorbital ecchymosis. A lot of times there's edema. Uh, a lot of times the eyes, uh, the eyelids are swollen, practically shut. Um, and then, you know, when you sit down, you start talking to the patient and getting the history, uh, and, uh, you know, it inevitably kind of starts off with the classic tale that's, that's older than time itself. I was minding my own business, uh, when, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and, uh, you know, then you just kind of want to get into the, uh, the usual questions, you know, how long ago did it happen? Cause that gives you an idea of, you know, how much, uh, more edema to expect. Um, you, know, you want to find out whether... Uh, they're having a lot of pain in the eye. Uh, you want to get an idea of, uh, of uh, what their vision is like, um, both in terms of, you know, acuity and also diplopia. Uh, and, then, uh, and then, of course, you know, you want to know whether there are any other injuries as well, because it's very easy to get sort of trapped in that, uh, that tunnel vision where you, you, know, you see the really obvious injury and then you uh, kind of lose the, uh, the forest for the trees there. Great. Thank you. And uh, before we move on to working up a patient, let's just take a moment to define which bones might actually be fractured in an NOE or an orbital fracture. Um, Dr. Davies, do you mind walking us through those a little bit? Yeah, happy to. Um, so we all know that orbit has four walls. So when we talk about regular orbital fractures, so um, start with the medial wall. I remember that with the, the acronym SMELL, S-M-E-L. So your, your body, your sphenoid, uh, your maxilla, the frontal process, uh, the ethmoid bone, which is the orbital plate, and then your lacrimal bone, um, and that's your lamina papricia. The ethmoid and uh, lacrimal bones make up that thin, uh, paper-thin, uh, bony wall. Uh, then when you move over to the lateral wall, you've got the frontal bone, uh, the zygomatic process there, the sphenoid, uh, greater wing, and then the zygomatic, the orbital surface of the zygomatic bone. Uh, the roof is only made up of two bones, the sphenoid, uh, the lesser wing of it, and then the orbital plate of the frontal bone. Uh, and then finally, the orbital floor is made up of three bones. Uh, that's going to be your zygoma, your maxilla, and your palatine. And now with an NOE fracture specifically, uh, so that classically, uh, as Dr. Homan was saying, um, happens with a direct blow right to the bridge of the nose. Um, and so that frontal process of the maxilla is going to get pushed posteriorly and splay the medial walls in. Uh, so I know we're going to get into signs and symptoms, but that is the, the pathophysiology of an NOE fracture specifically. Since it's important to our future discussion on surgical approaches, can we briefly review periorbital anatomy relevant to treating those types of fractures? Sure. So, um, you know, any uh, relevant anatomy should include the eyelid anatomy. So um, the 
the central portion of the eyelid known as the orbital septum, which uh, divides um, orbital processes from preceptal processes, kind of makes up the middle lamella. Anterior to that, you have your skin and your orbicularis muscle, which close the eye. Uh, and then posterior to it, you have the conjunctiva, uh, the retractors, and the tarsal plate, which is about 10 millimeters high in the upper eyelid and four millimeters uh, in the lower eyelid. So that tarsal plate is dense fibrous tissue. Um, it is uh, under the orbital septum in the lower lid, but it doesn't extend necessarily over it in the upper eyelid. Um, you know, if you see, if you have an eyelid laceration and you see uh, fat, um, you got to worry about a levator injury because um, preepineurotic fat is right behind the septum. Uh, and so there could be injury to the levator, um, which is right behind that fat. Uh, and so those are the main structures of the eyelid. Of course, Mueller's muscle is the sympathetically innervated muscle. Um, that is involved in Horner syndrome, giving you a mild ptosis. So that's right behind the levator. Um, and then palpebral conge is the last structure of the eyelid. Um, and uh, what is frequently involved in an OE fracture is the medial canthal tendon. Um, so if you remember, this is a, a firm tendon that keeps the eyelids in place, and it is going to branch and have an anterior cruse that goes to the anterior lacrimal crest and a posterior cruse, uh, which goes to the posterior lacrimal crest. The anterior is beefier, uh, but the posterior is more important for eyelid contour uh, around the globe. Uh, and so with an NOE fracture, um, where that medial canthal tendon is attached is often involved in the fracture, which which leads to some of the, the signs, again, that we'll get into. And are there any other comorbid or associated injuries you want to look out for with orbit involving fractures? Yes, absolutely. So anytime there's a fracture, um, our team's going to be called because first and foremost, you got to rule out an injury to the globe. Uh, so uh, open globe would be the most concerning, but uh, other closed globe injuries that can occur, um, you know, you can get a hyphema, you can have a retinal detachment, you can have a subconjunctival hemorrhage, which isn't uh, too much to worry about, but um, should be evaluated by us. Um, besides that, um, Anytime there's an orbital fracture, you can get the extraocular muscles uh, entrapped in a fracture. And when we talk about entrapment, there, there's really um, there's two forms of entrapment. Number one, there's, there's where a muscle gets caught on a bony ledge. It's not damaging the muscle per se, but it's keeping the uh, eye from moving. Uh, and that's an indication for repair, but not urgent repair. There's another type that we refer to as a wide-eyed blowout fracture, um, classically in, in PEDS cases, um, where there's not a lot of periorbital ecchymosis that we typically see in the fractures. Um, they look fine straight on, uh, but when they go to look up, that, that eye won't go up, and then uh, they, that's often associated with what's called an oculocardiac reflex. So that vagus nerve um, shuts down that heart rate and they go from, you know, the mid 60s uh, down to into the 20s and um, alarms start sounding. And, and you know, when you have that, um, that muscle has actually truly been entrapped in a green step type fracture where it falls into the sinus. Uh, the floor, the medial wall closes back over and that is actually a surgical emergency where we need to go in and um, release that entrapment right away. Um, traumatic optic neuropathy is another thing that can happen, especially with roof fractures, um, damage to the frontal bone. Um, traumatic optic neuropathy can occur either as direct injury to the optic nerve, uh, like a fracture of the optic canal, or an indirect uh, blow that just causes, um, we don't know exactly why, but there's maybe some shearing forces involved, uh, but a tra traumatic optic neuropathy will show up um, with greatly reduced vision on that side and a, a dilated pupil uh, and an afferent pupillary defect 
when you do your swinging flashlight test. Um, so other, um, other conditions that can occur. So um, you can get a superior orbital fissure syndrome, which will affect the nerves coming through the superior orbital fissure, fissure and that'll be um, 3, 4, V1, V2. Um, you can also get an orbital apex syndrome, uh, and the difference is that's going to get everything, including uh, your optic nerve, which is coming through the optic canal. So that, that's the difference between an orbital apex syndrome and a superior orbital fissure syndrome. Thanks so much for clarifying that for us, especially with the uh, different types of entrapment. You can see the difference between entrapment and gaze restriction. Can you comment on that a little bit? I know that can sometimes be confusing for us yes. residents. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when these patients initially present, most of them will have um, some kind of gaze restriction, meaning they can't move their eye in a certain direction all the way. Um, often associated with diplopia. Um, now, the diplopia can be in primary um, gaze, looking straight ahead, or it can happen when they're looking up, down, left, or right in any of those. So when we talk about gaze restriction, there, there's different etiologies. Um, number one, probably the most common thing I see, it's um, a gaze restriction immediately after an orbital fracture is not usually due to entrapment. It's usually due um, to trauma to the muscle muscle edema, just like when you get a contusion elsewhere in your body or a Charlie horse and your leg doesn't want to work right. The same thing happens in the orbit. Um, and, and those muscles will not work like they normally do. And they can't um, get that eye up or down all the way, depending on which muscle in, is involved. Um, so that is the number one reason for, um, for um, poor motility right afterwards. Um, next would be a, a fracture where the muscle is um, going down into a fracture, taking away some of its mechanical advantage, or even um, the muscle is caught on part of the um, fractured, uh, right on the ledge of the bony um, injury there. So for cases like that, um, it's obviously not going to get fixed on its own. So that's one that is indicated for repair, but that muscle isn't at risk of undergoing an ischemic event or being permanently damaged. So you have a week or two to let the periorbital edema go down, have a nice clean surgery, get in there and, and get that uh, muscle back where it needs to be. You know, with respect to patients who um, have nasoorbitoethmoid fractures, uh, the thing that we uh, typically see on presentation is some degree of traumatic telecanthus um, or uh, pseudo hypertelarism, uh, as it's also known. It's basically when the medial canthi widen. And so that distance between them, which should ordinarily be the same width as the palpebral fissure, right? Approximately one fifth uh, the width of the face, um, it, it widens. And so the patient kind of looks just a little bit funny. Uh, they look like they have an oddly wide uh, nasal root, uh, and that often um, occurs uh, simultaneously with sort of a, a saddle nose type deformity where the the dorsum of the nose is a little bit flattened because oftentimes that's where the, the direct blow uh, impacted. Uh, I've seen this a couple times uh, with softballs, um, and so you know that thing comes out of nowhere, whacks the patient right in the middle of the face, um, and then they come in and they look just a little bit wide there. Um, and, and it may not be symmetric either, you know, it's usually not going to be entirely symmetric. And you may also see some flattening uh, in the glabella itself, because oftentimes these injuries come with, uh, at the very least, an anterior table uh, frontal sinus fracture. So uh, you end up kind of fixing it all at the same time. But that's kind of the, that's the thing that, uh, that, that appearance is what's going to clue you in um, to the, uh, the presence of an NOE fracture. 
That's a great point, Dr. Hillman. And uh, I'll add from from our perspective, um, commonly involved in this, these NOE fractures is the nasolacrimal duct. Um, and so um, actually done a, a lot of literature searching on this because I, I get asked not infrequently, hey, do you need to come join us in the OR for this NOE repair um, and, and put some um, stents in the nasolacrimal system? Uh, and so the answer I found is, it doesn't matter either way because um, patients do well whether you stent them primarily uh, or um, they go ahead and get their um, reduction fixation uh, and then later go back and, and do a, a DCR or dacrocystorhinostomy uh, to bypass the, the damaged nasolacrimal uh, system. So um, outcomes are equal in terms of that, but epiphora is another common uh, clinical finding in these patients uh, after an NOE fracture. Dr. Homan, I know when you're talking about telecanthus, you know, we often say 35 millimeters or 40 millimeters between the medial canthi, but sometimes patients come in and they're like, no, this is how I normally look. Uh, they might just have a little bit of a wider nasal bridge. How do you, is there a way that you can, besides looking at like a grainy selfie or a driver's license photo that you can think, oh, this is, this is pathologic versus this is something that uh, is baseline for them? Uh, that's a great question. I think yeah, for me anyway, it kind of comes down to uh, passing the smell test or, or rather, you know, does it look right? Um, because, you know, as you pointed out, like looking at driver's license photos or selfies um, are generally less helpful than uh, than you think they're going to be. Um, but, you know, you can look at the facial proportions, right? And so um, you can kind of get an idea of of how wide the, uh, the intercanthal distance should be based on the width of the face. And, and of course... Um, you know, the, the, the proportions are going to vary with different ethnicities as well, right? Um, with patients of a higher Fitzpatrick um, score, uh, you know, we tend to see uh, a broader nose anyway, um, but you can still kind of kind of get an idea. Um, and then at the end of the day, you're probably going to have a CT scan too. So Dr. Homan, I'll, I'll transition back to you for a moment. Are there any diagnostic criteria that you typically follow for these types of fractures? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's the uh, the classic Markowitz-Manson um, uh, classification scheme for uh, describing the severity of NOE fractures. Uh, type one, which is most common, uh, has a sort of a there's like a, a single fragment um, to which the medial canthal tendon remains attached. Um, whereas in type two, uh, that fragment is comminuted. Um, so it's a little bit harder to, to get a hold of it, but the canthal ligament is still attached to it. Uh, and in uh, a type three fracture, everything's just kind of completely comminuted and shattered. Uh, and the, uh, the medial canthal ligament is not attached to any sort of usable piece of bone. And is there any other workup like imaging or labs that you typically consider for these patients? Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of alluded to it before. I think the, uh, you know, fine cut non-contrast CT scan uh, of the face. And I usually get um, 3D reconstructions for, for all facial trauma. And not just because it's good for, um, for operative planning, but uh, it's much easier uh, when you're talking with the patient preoperatively uh, for them to understand um, you know, what the extent of the injuries are if they can see the 3D reconstruction. Dr. Davies, anything from an ophthal standpoint that you guys think of pre-op while working these patients up? No, um, just we, we like to get a good ophthalmic exam vision if they're able, intraocular pressure, um, in, a, in addition to the imaging that we'll review as well. But um, no, that's, that's it. 
the indications for taking a patient back to the OR with an orbital fracture. Um, Dr. Homan, what are the kind of facial plastic guidelines for that? Um, you know, I think, uh, as Dr. Davies already mentioned, the, the main sort of number one got to go um, indication in my mind is, uh, is, a, is a persistent um, you know, oculocardic reflex with bradycardia, vital sign instability, um, more likely to be seen in a child. Um, and, uh, and that, that's basically, a, well, you gotta go fix this. <laughs> Otherwise the kid's heart's gonna, you know, beat along at 20. Um, but, uh, along the same lines, you know, if, if there is a, if there is an incarceration of, uh, like the inferior oblique, um, then, uh, then that would be a good reason to go sooner rather than later. Uh, other than that, um, you know, the common indications are going to be, uh, diplopia. Um, and then the other ones that, uh, that they always kind of tell you as a resident are a loss of, uh, 50% of the, uh, of the orbital floor, um, as well as, uh, enophthalmos or hypoglobus of, um, two millimeters, um, and, uh, you know, or, or loss of, uh, one and a half to two square centimeters of, um, of orbital floor. Uh, but those are, those are indications for going, you know, like at some point, um, in the next, you know, few days to a couple of weeks, whatever it may be. Um, I usually like to give, uh, like to give the steroids a, a few days to, to work, um, to make the, uh, the operation a little bit easier with less edema. Um, but I, I try not to wait more than a week, um, because after that things kind of start to fuse together, the bones start to fuse together and yield a bit more fibrosis. Um, and then it's, uh, it's just a little harder to reduce the, uh, the orbital contents. Dr. Davies, any differences on, you know, from an optho perspective? No, I, sometimes we can get um, pretty technical with our diplopia measurements if we need to. We can um, put a Goldman um, diplopia visual field on them. Usually not necessary. Get a feel from the patients where their diplopia is starting and stopping. And so um, that's another one we'll look at closely. And, and um, I agree with Dr. Homan. Um, for most everybody outside of a, a bradycardic reflex, a, a wide-eyed blowout fracture, um, I'm giving them at least a week to let things cool down and see where, where things settle. Because I've seen uh, big fractures not causing ophthalmos, and I've seen small fractures cause it. And so sometimes you don't know where things are going to fall out, and giving it uh, a little time for things to settle is, is not a bad idea at all. And anything, any difference between diplopia and primary gaze versus diplopia in kind of more lateral gaze, like you mentioned before? Yeah. So um, diplopia and primary gaze is definitely an indication to go in and repair because that's, that's number one, most likely not going to resolve if it's still there after a week or two. And number two, that's debilitating, right? You can't live with double vision uh, in your central gaze. Whereas we, we do have plenty of patients who maybe have a tiny little bit of upgaze diplopia, just a little gaze restriction, and, and they can live with that because they don't really look up for much anything in their life. Uh, that said, I've taken care of a few like college age um, baseball, softball players who get a fracture and it's it's not that big. It's not really meeting any of the criteria we're talking about, but they get double vision when they look up and they need that single vision to catch those pop flies. Uh, and so in that population, they're getting a repair, whereas, you know, someone who's 80 and has the same symptoms may not be. And again, we've kind of touched on this a bit, but contraindications for immediate repair? Sure. There, there's a few in our world. Um, so if there's a concomitant globe rupture, uh, that obviously needs to be repaired first because any kind of um, retraction on an open globe is, is, can do more damage that's already there. Um, 
high FEMAs, we like, if at all possible, um, we like to wait a minimum of five days before doing any kind of manipulation in the orbit uh, because of the risk of rebleeding and, and the damage to vision that can be caused by that. Uh, retinal detachment, I'll get, I'm not a retina surgeon, but we'll get our retina colleagues involved, but um, usually a good idea to fix that retina um, before doing any kind of fracture repair. Um, traumatic optic neuropathy is uh, not usually a, a contraindication, but you can kind of wait and give it a little time and see if that vision is going to come back at all because um, you, you don't want a patient saying they were seeing before surgery and then they're blind after. And this is another great reason to get a good vision check before any fracture repair. Um, so you're covered medical legally um, by someone who maybe are, had traumatic neuropathy beforehand, and that is the reason for their vision loss. Um, and then if it's if an orbit is fractured and it's just that um, only seeing eye of that patient, you just want to go in with a little more trepidation in someone like that uh, because of the risk, uh, the small risk of vision loss in, in any orbital surgery. Before we move on to treatment approaches, um, what is the time frame during which you want to get these patients back to the operating room? Again, the literature can vary on this. So um, I'll start with you, Dr. Davies, in terms of timing. Yeah. So uh, again, there's um, those ind indications that we talked about for emergent repair is the um, the pediatric wide-eyed blowout trap door fracture. Um, and, and it can often be associated with that oculocardiac reflex. For those people, uh, as, as soon as it's been eight hours from their last meal, that's when we're going. It's, it's ASAP. Um, outside of that, um, um, I will, if I see a patient for the first time and I see um, a, a very huge fracture or a muscle um, that is way displaced or they already have developed some hypoglobus, the globe is malpositioned. There are certain patients that you know, okay, this patient's going to need a repair. Um, I'll go ahead and put them on the schedule for seven to 10 days from then and then check them uh, beforehand just to make sure nothing has changed. Um, and then everyone else will tend to um, give them a follow-up at um, one to two weeks and can make a decision for them then if they need to go, if they're having that persistent diplopia, if they're starting to develop enophthalmos, if they have a large fracture. Although I, I've kind of gotten away from operating purely based on imaging guidance. I, I more like the clinical uh, findings to direct my decisions. Um, but for the most part, I, I do like to do them within two or three weeks of the injury, just as Dr. Homan said, for the ease of the surgery. Uh, whereas the longer you wait, the more you get that fibrosis and a, and a more difficult surgery you have getting back there. Dr. Homan, any, um, any differences in facial plastic literature? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think my approach is probably pretty consistent with, uh, with Dr. Davies there. I might tend to go a little bit sooner, but um, you know, I like the point that he made about uh, making the determination to operate or not based on the clinical exam. Uh, and certainly the CT scan can be very helpful looking at, you know, the, the sagittal view to get a good idea of what the floor is looking like and, you know, and um, looking at the, the coronal view as well. But at the end of the day, uh, the clinical picture is going to tell you whether or not you need to operate. Um, and, you know, as I said before, I usually try to get to, try to, get to the operating room you know, about a, a week or so, again, depending on how much swelling is there and and like Dr. Davies said, I, I would you know, usually want to see the patient back uh, a week or so after, uh, uh, after the trauma uh, to reassess and, and see how things are looking. So for a patient undergoing operative intervention, um, they've already gotten steroids. Could you walk us through the different approaches for an NOE or orbital floor fracture? 
Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll start with um, like a, just a regular straight up orbital floor fracture. So uh, my preferred approach is the um, fornicele transconjunctival approach. Um, I don't worry about going preceptal. I just get right down to that rim, open up that periosteum and, um, and go get it. Um, you know, the, there are other approaches, the subsiliary incision and the, the kind of mid eyelid incision and then the uh, orbital rim incision. Um, those can lead to ectropion and pro I've seen um, a lot of issues with those. So I, I definitely prefer the um, transconjunctival approach. Now, if there's a medial wall involvement, um, that can be combined uh, with a transcuruncular approach to give you uh, nice exposure to the, the floor and medial wall. Um, and if I'm dealing with a big fracture or a big implant, I'm struggling with size, I, I have a low threshold to just go ahead and do a canthotomy cantholysis uh, swinging eyelid approach um, to give myself the room to work. Um, there are times where we will get referred a patient with a um, eyelid, full thickness eyelid involving laceration involving the canalicular system from too much retraction on the lower lid. Uh, and so to prevent that, it's, um, you know, just do the canthotomy cantholysis and you can put it uh, back pretty straightforward at the end. NOE fracture is a little bit more involved. Um, um, sometimes they will have an existing laceration that you can go through to fixate. Um, otherwise, um, a, a lynch type incision on the nasal sidewall um, or a glabellar incision, if, if it's a type 1 NOE where you've got some big um, chunks of bone to work with. Uh, but when, it get, when you get to the really comminuted ones, um, often it's going to take a coronal approach to get the exposure you need. Uh, and then for the, the transnasal wiring, uh, that can be done either through a transcuruncular approach or through a, a small skin incision on the nasal sidewall. Dr. Homan, anything else uh, to add on that? Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask Dr. Davies. Uh, he mentioned the, uh, the lateral canthotomy and inferior cantholysis. When you do that uh, to improve your exposure for trauma, do you typically uh, resuspend the lateral canthus or do you kind of let it do its own thing? Uh, great question, Dr. Homan. I always suspend it because uh, I'm there and I, I feel very comfortable putting it back. We do a lot of canthotomy cantholysis in the trauma bay uh, for orbital compartment syndrome. Um, and you'd be amazed at the number of patients um, who don't need secondary repair. I'm always very impressed. Maybe um, one out of 10 of them actually end up needing to come back to our procedure room and get that canthus put back. So I get what you're saying. It does heal very well most of the time. But if I can look and know with my own eyes in the OR that it's back where I want it, I, I kind of sleep a little better at night knowing that it's it's back where I where I left it. Yeah, no, me too, for sure. I uh, Whenever I whenever I do that, I put it back to you, but uh, I was just kind of Kind of curious to see if you had a different approach. Um, you know, when I'm um, when I'm doing um, orbital floor fractures, um, I use a transconjunctival approach as well. I typically do a preceptal approach, um, and you know, honestly, it's probably just because that's what I'm comfortable doing. Um, that's the approach that I use for lower lid blepharoplasty as well, uh, and so it's kind of just second nature. Um, and uh, and for teaching purposes, I, I think it's kind of nice to just be I don't know consistent. That's what I usually use, and then uh, and then I'll oftentimes introduce, um, you know, a, a straight or even a thirty degree uh, rigid endoscope as well, um, since I'm pretty pretty comfortable with that um, from sinus and uh, uh, endoscopic brow surgery, um, and it gives us a good view, you know, all the way back to the inferior oral fissure and uh, a good view of uh, of what remains of the orbital floor. You know, I and I like the preceptal uh, approach. Uh, I think probably more in theory. 
uh, than anything else because in theory, if you're going down the front of the septum and then elevating the, the periosteum of the orbital floor, uh, the fat shouldn't get in your way. Uh, and in a younger patient, the, uh, the orbital septum is going to be a little bit more robust, um, so you're not necessarily going to have to worry about all the fat pooching out. But I mean, realistically, as soon as you actually get to the orbital floor, the, the periosteum is going to be uh, attenuated, torn up, uh, and then and then the fat and the orbital contents are going to pooch out at you anyway. But um, that's just kind of kind of what I what I like to do, and I like to think that um, if I don't go wrecking the, uh, the lower eyelid and I don't also come through the skin and the uh, and the muscle, that the the risk of ectropion is relatively low. Um, and uh, knock on wood, I haven't haven't had trouble with that afterwards so far. Fair, fair points, Dr. Homan. And um, I, I would say um, preceptal or postceptal, I, I don't think making a huge difference, but definitely the, the transconj approach is in my mind superior to all the others. And I love watching you guys work with the camera. Every time I try to stick a camera in the orbit, I'll do it too. Cause I've learned from you guys and the, the view is awesome, but man, that blood and the fat get in the way. Uh, watching you guys drive one and, and me drive one is like, watching me drive my car and then my 16 year old daughter getting in and driving the car. It's just a lot more awkward and, and jerky. And so, um, you guys are definitely the camera experts in that regard. Um, and I, I'd also like to echo what uh, Dr. Davies was saying about approaches to, uh, NOE fractures. Um, I, I personally, I think I have a fairly low threshold for doing a, a coronal incision. Um, and, uh, and obviously that gives you great exposure as well for, for frontal sinus fractures, um, which are, you know, uh, fairly frequently accompany the nasal orbitoethmoid fractures. And so, um, in, in the, in the ones that I've done, uh, there have frequently been frontal sinus fractures. So I've, I've often just kind of opened things up and, and gotten a good view. And after the fracture is adequately exposed, what are our surgical options then? Yeah. So, um, obviously you want to, uh, reduce the fractures. So, and, and that, especially in NOE, uh, is easier said than done. Um, and, and you're thankful to have a, a few hands in the pot at that point. So, um, and you got your medial canthal tendons kind of pulling on those bone chunks. They're, they're wanting to be displaced and pull laterally. So it often takes one person to kind of get the f uh, fracture fragments into place and hold them there um, while the other surgeon is, um, is fixating with the mini plates. Um, so, you know, of course, for all those um, exoskeleton type fractures, the NOCs, the ZMCs, your rim fractures, those are going to be your mini plates, your titanium plates and screws that fixate those. Um, and then once you get in the orbit, then we're talking about um, the different um, flatter implants. Uh, you know, our OMF colleagues like um, the straight titanium ones. Uh, in the oculoplastic world, we don't um, care for those too much. We've seen a, a lot in our literature, and a lot of us have gone on to revise those for uh, orbital adhesion uh, syndrome. So, um, I personally prefer for for bigger fractures. I, I like a um, porous polyethylene uh, with titanium in, in the middle, um, and with the smooth uh, top to it, so to prevent adhesion. And then for smaller fractures, I actually um, like a nice cheap uh, supermed or nylon foil. Uh, slides in there real well, pretty inert, um, and and tend to hold the orbital contents uh, just fine. Dr. Homan, any differences? on the facial plastic side or? Honestly, I'm, I'm sitting here smiling, listening to Dr. Davies because I, I actually approach things exactly the same way. I, I don't like bare titanium um, because it just gets caught in stuff. Um, and I, you know, I like the, the porous polyethylene over titanium. And I also like the, the super foil, the, the smooth nylon um, when, uh, you know, when I can get away with that. Um, and maybe that's just because I, I learned from oculoplastic surgeons. I don't know, but uh, 
yeah, 100% on the same page. Um, you know, the other thing that uh, you can sometimes use if you need to, uh, particularly in like a, a low uh, a low resource environment, um, like the one in which I'm currently sitting, um, uh, would be the use of split calvarial bone grafts as well, um, particularly if you're approaching an NOE or frontal sinus fracture via a uh, via coronal approach, and you've already got exposure of the of the parietal bone, you can potentially harvest split calvarial bone um, to use as uh, orbital floor implants. But uh, yeah, other than that, um, that's uh, you know totally on the same page. And then you know when you're all done and you're happy with it, um, you know you either get an, uh, an intra intraoperative CT or you get a, a CT scan afterwards to. Check and make sure you're happy with things, and uh, and don't forget uh, forced duction testing as well. And um, I know sometimes we hear as residents the placement of the transnasal wires can be really tricky. Uh, if you put them maybe a little too anterior or a little too inferior, they can cause kind of iatrogenic telecanthus. Um, can you comment a little bit on what you know what your tricks or tips are for placing those? Wires. Yes, good. It's good question, and it is um, that is not an easy task, and it's it's nicer when you can do it under direct visual visualization, like when you've um, lifted a coronal flap. Uh, but that's not always the case because not every one of these needs that. Uh, and so, yeah, I would say the two mistakes that are most commonly made are um, putting it too anteriorly or too inferiorly, and you you can see it as soon as you um, fixate it because the eyelid uh, will be pulled off the globe, um, and so you know it right away that this this wire is not going to work. Um, so I, I don't have a good, um, it, it's kind of a gestalt. So um, trial and error, but getting it back far enough uh, into the orbit um, and getting the exposure you need. Um, and then, you know, that that wire, um, how are you going to fixate it? So if, if you just have a one side, um, I like to take just a titanium mini plate um, and bring the wire uh, all the way through and through and then just fixate it down to a mini plate. Uh, there's also those MyTech uh, anchors that you can use. Um, I've had mixed results with those. Um, but yeah, it's uh, if you don't like it on the table, once you have reduced and passed the transnasal wire, you're not going to like it uh, the next day. So go ahead and fix it while you're there. Dr. Homan, any uh, post-op or intra-op CTs that you like to do or any other like post-op or intra-op uh, imaging? Yeah, just the, just the CT scan. Um... Because uh, you know, most of the time uh, after surgery, at least with my patients anyway, they're pretty edematous, uh, and so that kind of uh, messes with the physical exam a little bit. Um, but uh, you know, having the uh, the peace of mind that uh, that the uh, the floor has been reconstructed somewhat symmetrically, that uh, you don't have a bunch of stuff herniating down into the maxillary sinus, and that you're uh, you haven't trapped anything with your orbital floor implant is um, is always nice. Um, and Dr. Davies, I'll defer to your opfo expertise on this. And the case where there is an orbital injury that we have also noted, you know, while we're evaluating these patients, what are we doing there for the globe or for the retina before we're um, considering operative repair of the fracture? Yeah. Yeah, great question. So, so primary repair of the globe is what comes first. So we are actually um, putting sutures into the, the globe. So either the sclera, the cornea, uh, wherever the laceration is, we are re-inflating the globe. And then we need to give that a little bit of time to make sure that that repair is going to hold. Uh, because again, if the contents of the eye uh, leak out or you put increased pressure on that and expose you know, parts of the retina or vitreous and, and things like that, then you could have irritability 
reversible damage to the eye and, and permanent vision loss. Um, so it really depends on the pathology. The retina, um, usually our retina surgeons are going to need to um, repair that. Sometimes that requires positioning of the patient for like a week afterwards, um, which can delay orbital fracture repair. Uh, and then for hyphema, like hyphema type picture, we, um, we got to put those patients on bed rest. They can't be doing uh, strenuous activity. And again, as mentioned, if you're, if you're cranking on the eyeball too hard in that first um, period, you can get a re-bleed, uh, which can lead to pressure spikes and, uh, and permanent vision loss as well. And if we do have a patient with an ocular cardiac reflex or some other kind of um, vital sign instability, as well as an orbital or globe injury, do we do that with you at the same time? Or is that kind yes, of Yes. A... In that, and um I have never seen that or had a colleague see that, to my knowledge. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very rare for those things to go in unison. But if they did, uh, my approach would be, well, we have two surgical emergencies, so we got to um, treat both in the best way that we can. So that'd be something that we'd go in together and, and figure it out. What kinds of post-operative care, like antibiotics or food or activity restrictions, do you typically recommend for these patients? Um, yeah, you know, I'm not very imaginative when it comes to, uh, post-operative care, uh, post-operative, um, activity restrictions. I, I pretty much do the same thing for everybody, whether it's a facelift, uh, a rhinoplasty, uh, or orbital surgery. Um, I, at the end of the day, I want to do everything I can to help prevent, um, or rather minimize edema and ecchymosis. So that's going to be sleeping with the head of bed elevated. Um, it's going to be intermittent cold packs, not you know, not like ice directly on the skin, obviously, but just cool packs to help with the edema and the ecchymosis. Um, no nose blowing. Um, that's a, that's a big problem. Um, uh, and I've, I've definitely, uh, I remember I had a friend, uh, curbside me once after, uh, getting an elbow in the eye playing soccer. And he said, Hey Mark, uh, I got an elbow in the eye and it wasn't that bad, but I went to blow my nose later and I, I felt, I felt air in my eye. I was like, well, that's, that's, well, that, that gives us an idea of what's going on here. Uh, and so uh, I think that's that's also an important point for, uh, for post-operative care. Don't blow the nose. Um, you know, avoid avoid straining of any sort, right? Uh, uh, um, you, know, you don't want to pick up anything heavy. You don't want to do any uh, strenuous exercise. Uh, you know, if you're going to be on narcotics, you want to be on a stool softener too. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, you want to keep um, small children, pets, and uh, flying objects away from your face. Uh, anything else, Dr. Davies, to add to that? No, I, I will just say that um, I'll, I'll add that um, postoperative antibiotics are not standard for me unless it's it's some kind of um, um, foreign body or vegetative matter or a real dirty wound. Um, but standard uh, orbital fractures, I do not give post-op antibiotics. What are the main complications that we should be counseling patients on before going back to the operating room with an NOE or an orbital fracture? Yeah, so any patient that I take back for orbital surgery is um, is getting the full risk profile. So they need to know there is a small but real chance of permanent vision loss um, because of the optic nerve. There is a small but real chance of permanent double vision. Um, there's a very good chance of temporary double vision. Um, there is a small chance of infection. There's a small chance of retrobulbar hematoma. There's a chance that the plate migrates. Um, so we go over all these things um, and, and, you know, but at the end of the day for the patients we're taking back, the, the benefits of the surgery um, outweigh the risks. Um, 
And so when I do have a patient, uh, especially with the probably the most common thing I see, um, they'll come back uh, three, four weeks later um, and they'll still have some double vision. And so I'll get the question, do we need to take this uh, implant out or do we need to revise it? And so the first thing I want to see is that CT scan. As Dr. Homan said, always get a CT scan, especially in a training institution. Um, just get a CT scan post-op um, so you can look at your outcome. But that's the if, if they don't have a CT scan, that's the first thing I'm looking for. And I'm looking for, is that uh, orbit adequately reduced? Is the implant in the right place? And I will tell you, a lot of the time it is. And, and if it isn't, then the answer is pretty clear. Yeah, we need to go back into the operating room, uh, revise that implant. If it's in the right place, I give them time because um, we see uh, diplopia resolve over even like six to nine months. So if everything looks good uh, in, with the implant, it's just waiting and encouraging the patient. Are you expecting any changes in the cosmesis or surgical outcome over time after these procedures? Um, you know, for the most part, not really. Um, you know, as, uh, as Dr. Davies was saying, it, it's not uncommon to have a little bit of prolonged diplopia um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like most of the time that goes away and most of the time, you know, any, any, any bit of it that doesn't, the patients kind of eventually kind of get used to and accommodate for. Um, but in terms of, you know, cosmesis, if, if everything goes according to plan, you know, you get the, the position of the implant, right. There really shouldn't be too much cosmetic change. Um, sometimes it's easy to overestimate the volume of the orbital contents, uh, with the edema there. Uh, and so over time you may find that the globe does, uh, retreat or sink a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, ideally, uh, ideally that doesn't happen. And it's certainly not something that I would expect on a, uh, on a routine basis. And for any other intraorbital complications, what, what do you typically see here? Or are they at all common? Probably the most common one is that dang little inferior oblique, um, you know, coming off, uh, the maxilla just below the lacrimal sac and inserting back, uh, and the posterior of the globe by the macula. Um, it's just one that if you, if you don't get under subperiosteal and under it, it, it's easy to get through that muscle and cause damage. Um, and you know, that's a muscle, uh, that is going to, uh, elevate the eye and abduct the eye. Uh, and so you can see motility problems, um, as a result of that. Um, outside of that, it's usually the muscle that you're, you're working on. So on a floor, it's the inferior rectus, right? It's in the maxilla, maxillary sinus. So you're putting some, you know, retractors on it and getting it back in the orbit. And just, um, I've seen just manipulating the muscles. Um, sometimes they'll get swollen and they just don't work right for a little while after surgery. And that's why you give it that time. Uh, but the inferior oblique is, is definitely the most common. And as a follow-up question, how do you typically treat these complications if they do occur? Sure. So um, again, for the muscle um, damage, give it some time uh, for implant uh, malposition, you go in and replace it. If they do um, have epiphora, especially after an NOE fracture um, and it doesn't get better, um, then the damage was in the nasolacrimal duct. So we can go in through the sac and do a dacrosisterinostomy, a DCR, and create a new uh, passageway for the tears to drain into the nose. Um, sometimes the hardware has to come out if it gets uh, infected. Of course, if they get a retrobulbar hematoma in the early uh, post-op period, um, just right there in the pack, you do a canthotomy, cantholysis, and get it open. Um, and then one other complication I see from time to time is, is lid malpositions. Um, whether there's hardware on the inferior rim leading to like a cicatricial entropion uh, to a canthal dehiscence where there's an ectropion um, to a poorly for, um, made incision, uh, which leads to a um, 
anterior lamella scarring and a cicatricial ectropy and kind of seen them all. And, and those um, usually require treatment due to the um, uh, ocular symptoms they cause. And uh, kind of to follow up on what Dr. Hellman was commenting on, any changes in cosmesis or surgical outcome? Yeah, usually not. Usually if you get the anatomy reduced, um, the, the cosmesis should be there and should stay the same. And then just what gets better over time is, is the edema, uh, obviously the ecchymosis, and then um, the function, the motility um, sometimes takes the longest, uh, usually in my, uh, in, in my experience, takes longer than the cosmesis to get better. Um, but you know, usually by like a month or two, they're looking pretty good outside of their, their little scars that they can find. And how frequently do you typically follow these patients up post-op? Yeah. So if, if they're an outpatient, I will, um, typically see them at post-op week one and then at month one, uh, and then at about three to four months, um, for the bigger fractures, the NOE types, they're often inpatients. And so they'll be kind of part of the, the team's daily rounds, uh, until they get discharged. And then we'll see them uh, again a week from discharge, uh, and then a month. So that, that's our normal timing. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, I really appreciate uh, you guys reaching out to me uh, all the way over here. To briefly summarize, orbital fractures involve any of the four walls of the orbit, while nasoorbitoethmoid complex fractures, or NOEs, involve the medial orbital wall, nasal bone, and a component of the ethmoid bone. They may both present with periorbital edema or ecchymosis, gaze restriction, or cranial nerve deficits, as well as ophthalmologic injuries such as global retinal or retinal trauma. NOE fractures will additionally characteristically present with telecanthus or saddle nose deformity and are often con concomitant with other facial, skull, or C-spine fractures. A fine cut CT of the face, usually without contrast, is often used to assess the degree of injury, and severity of NOEs may be further described by the Markowitz-Manson classification. Operative intervention is indicated emergently, i.e. within 24 hours, for patients with oculocardiac reflex, diplopia and primary gaze, or impending vision loss from increased intraocular pressure. Otherwise, operative repair may be delayed one to even two weeks to allow for swelling to resolve. Operative repair usually involves open reduction with internal fixation and may be approached through a transconjunctival, transcorunculaire, subciliary, subtarsal, or infraorbital approaches, or through an existing laceration. NOE fragments with the medial canthal tendon may be additionally replaced with transnasal wiring to resolve telecanthus, but need to be carefully placed to avoid iatrogenic telecanthus. The most common uh, complications include ectropion, epiphora, plate extrusion or infection, damage to orbital contents, or even retroorbital hematoma, and patients infrequently require surgical revision with possible lacrimal duct probing or hardware removal. Before we wrap up the episode, we'll end with some review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, pause for a moment to let you think of the answer, or pause the podcast, and then I'll give the answer. First question what is the difference between orbital apex syndrome and superior orbital fissure syndrome, and which cranial nerves are involved in each syndrome? Both orbital apex syndrome and superior orbital fissure syndrome involve weakness of cranial nerves 3, 4, 5, 1, and 6. In other words, palsy of the muscles involved in extraocular movement and cheek hypesthesia. The difference between them is that orbital apex syndrome additionally involves cranial nerve 2, with decreased visual acuity in primary gaze. Second up, 
Describe the Markowitz-Manson classification for NOE grading. The Markowitz-Manson classification is broken down into types 1, 2, and 3 NOE fractures. Type 1 involves a single central fragment with the medial canthal tendon attached. Type 2 involves comminuted fragments with the medial canthal tendon still attached to a single fragment, which differentiates it from a type 3, which is comminuted with disruption of the medial canthal attachment. What are the absolute and relative indications for operative intervention for NOEs or orbital fractures? And what are some contraindications for operative intervention? Absolute indications for operative intervention include entrapment, enophthalmus, or hypoglobus. Note that entrapment is what leads to the oculocardiac reflex and diplopia symptoms that can necessitate emergent intervention. Additionally, fracture size criteria of greater than 50% of the orbital floor or a fracture size greater than 1.5 square centimeters is often cited as an absolute indication for surgery, but is less commonly used. Mild diplopia within 20 to 30 degrees of primary gaze is a relative indication depending on the patient's uh, preferences. Contraindications for immediate operative repair include globe rupture or hyphema, retinal detachment, or traumatic optic neuropathy. Involvement of the patient's only seeing eye may also be a relative contraindication and should be thoroughly discussed with the patient. And last question, in orbital fracture repair, what is the most commonly injured extraocular muscle? For all comers, the inferior oblique is the most commonly injured muscle during orbital fracture repair. Recall this presents with difficulty moving the affected eye up and out. That's all for now. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.